Are you ready to travel through time with us? Then check out Traveling the Vortex, a Doctor Who podcast. For nearly seven years and more than 500 episodes, we've traveled from one end of the vortex to the other, making different stops with different doctors, reviewing everything from TV stories to audio plays, from books to comics, and more. Sean, Keith, and Glenn take you on a journey through 50-plus years of Doctor Who episodes and spinoff materials. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, so be sure to check us out. And now, we're a proud member of Direction Point, a Doctor Who podcast network. You're listening to the Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. You are invited on an adventure across all of time and space, in a completely random order. It's the Police Box in the Junkyard Podcast. Jump in the TARDIS with your hosts, Eric Goldbranson, Asad Cheshki, and Matthew Kressel. Explore Doctor Who TV stories, audio adventures, and books, both novels and non-fiction. The Police Box in the Junkyard Podcast. It's the entire Hooniverse. On Shuffle, the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast is a member of the Direction Point Network and is available about once a month wherever you find your podcasts. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hi, this is Vivino Para and I play Tanya Adiola on Class. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the ceremonial task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations because there are vague ceremonies happening in the story. That's all I could come up with. <laughs> My name is Tony Witt and today we have an equally ceremonial three-person discussion panel. I don't even know what that means. Including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. Snakey task, but then that wouldn't have worked either. There's our intermediate level casual fan who's seen several episodes, was not previously read any of the books until these podcasts. This time, it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. Well, you have me hissing over here, so snaky might be appropriate. <laughs> the hissing task of discussing. There we go, that could work. <laughs> And finally, there's our semi-novice fan, one who's seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast. And this time around, it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. Hello. <laughs> what happened to you? I hissed. You hissed? Okay, we couldn't even hear it. <laughs> I'll try again. Oh, there it went. Okay. That was more cat-like, though. I don't know. That sounded more like you were opening a bottle of soda, which I guess works because it is Memorial Day today here in the United States. So actually, that's tomorrow, isn't it? It's Memorial yeah. Day weekend. It's Memorial Day weekend. There we go. So if you hear any weird hissings or growlings or whatever in the background, it's bombs not the Mara. Bombs bursting in air. Yeah, bombs bursting in the air. It's not someone trying to destroy the Mara. It is instead people trying to destroy each other with fireworks. I mean, that's a false dichotomy. They could be also having a go at the Mara. They could. If you like what you're hearing, though I can't imagine why, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you'll receive, among other possible goodies, t-shirts, mugs with our logos on them if we ever get them made. Just like giving the PBS, but not a Target book. 
Since we know you have so many of them, you store them in a secret cavern behind a caving, a caving, a carving of a giant <laughs> snake. Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons. Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, Simon Painter, Joseph Middleton Welling, Louise Dennis, and Bluey. Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks, guys. All one breath. I just have to make sure to take the breath before I do the list. That's what has to happen. Tony's been doing cardiovascular training to prepare for that recitation of names. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7kmaspr. In fact, we expect you to. We continue our discussion of Peter to Davison's second season as the Doctor as we discuss Taryn Stick's novelization of Snake Dance. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Snake Dance, adapted by Terrence Dix from the script by Christopher Bailey, that aired from 1-18-83 to 1-26-83, published by Target Books in April 1984. As of this recording in May 2023, this title is out of print, 124 pages. We spoke previously about Christopher Bailey when we discussed Kinda, the story to which this book is a sequel. Despite the fact that he was unhappy with all of the rewrites that Eric Sayward had done on his previous script, Bailey and Sayward both agreed that the Mara had legs, so to speak, as a possible returning villain, and so they immediately began talks to bring it back the following year, after Bailey received assurances that his scripts would not be as extensively rewritten, he soon delivered this one, and it was decided to make it the first to be produced for the new season, but the second to air, presumably because of the scheduling for the overseas shoot of Ark of Infinity. So they actually made this one first. Bailey again uses the names of the various characters to reflect Buddhist concepts, with Manusa being a term for the human realm, Tana being the word for craving, Dugdale being a corruption of Dugati, or unhappy existence, and Chela being a word for religious disciple. Hmm. After this story, Bailey began work on a third story called The Children of Seth, which did not involve the Mara. But the experience of developing that script left him so disillusioned that he left television writing altogether. Mm, gosh. Yeah, imagine how bad that must have been. The script was eventually adapted by Mark Platt and produced by Big Finish, with David Warner and Honor Blackman in the cast. It's probably worth seeking that out. Speaking of Big Finish, they have at least one, possibly two, stories related to the Mara, including a direct sequel to this one, featuring Peter Davison, Janet Fielding, and I believe Sarah Sutton's in that one as well. And the Mara has come up in various different media, including a mention in an episode of Torchwood, amazingly enough. So obviously the Mara did have legs. The cast of this story includes at least two notable names. Martin Clunes, I think that's the way to pronounce his name, who would go on to stardom in the original UK version of Men Behaving Badly, made his TV debut as Lon. He somewhat regrets it to this day, though, because when he appears on talk shows for something, they inevitably show a clip of him in the Sky Hero costume, which is really something. <laughs> 
I would encourage you to Google it. I think that is communicated in the book. I was imagining it is really something. Oh, it's terrible. It's just terrible. In fact, if you Google Sky Hero Martin Clunes Snake Dance, it will give you the image and it is just oof. Well, especially since I only know him as, isn't he Doc Martin? Yes, that's right. I'm just He's picturing also him Doc now like in his 50s in that costume. <laughs> that's right. I keep forgetting he was also but, like, in, in the Doc Martin persona. <laughs> yes. Yeah, if you imagine Doc Martin, that's Lon, essentially, but in a really bad costume there, which I guess makes sense with the story because it's about a civilization that has become so complacent that they do puppet shows about the vast eternal evil that they managed to get rid of hundreds of years ago. So yeah, I guess it makes sense. The other notable actor is Brian Miller as Duckdale. Miller is not only the husband of the late Elizabeth Sladen, who played Sarah Jane Smith, and also the father of Sadie Miller, who now plays Sarah Jane Smith in the audios. He would also return to provide Dalek voices in the next two stories that they appear in. That's all we really have to say about the background of this one, so let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? Allison, you haven't been roped into doing one of these for a while. It's true. So we should have you do this one. What will be done by the time I'm finished with it, because we'll know the whole story. Yes. <laughs> the TARDIS arrives on the planet Manusa, much to the Doctor's surprise because Tegan has mysteriously set the coordinates. But Tegan, once again a member of the TARDIS crew, is not her own boss. An unsuspecting medium for the sinister Mara, she enables the evil exile to return to his home planet. On Manusa, the ten-yearly celebration of the Mara's banishment is about to take place. Only the Doctor realizes that this could in fact mark the spectacular revival of a reign of terror, but no one will heed his warning. Sorry, I was having another bite of chicken. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. I've still got the uh, Barton Clune snake dance costume up here to amuse me. Oh, you looked it up. Yeah. Yes, That's well, so and then... <laughs> Early in the book, I was finding it impossible to visualize Nissa's new costume they were describing, so I had looked that one up previously as well, and they really are both quite something. Oh, yes. Yeah, she was not well served by the changes in costume, because it doesn't look like her at all. Everything's very Technicolor. Yeah, it really is. She looks like she should be in a uh, musical theater production of something. So, first impressions. Dalton, what was your first impression upon getting this book? Well, I read the background, but then just now, after reading the book and hearing Allison read it again, it says Tegan mysteriously sent the coordinates, but we learned that she read them out to the doctor. So she didn't mysteriously send anything. No. And he was mysterious that Tegan knew where they were going. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> right? it's like she snuck into the control room while they were all asleep and, like, put the coordinates in. <laughs> put them in now. I mean, I guess it's mysterious that it was supposed to be coordinates to somewhere else, but still. I don't know. I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, over, I'm overthinking this book, which shouldn't happen. The back cover was not very coy about where the story was going. No. Mm -hmm. No. No. Well, when I heard Snake Dance, the image of Britney Spears at the VMAs dancing around on stage <laughs> with the boa constrictor... <laughs> was one of the first things that came to mind. The yellow oh, snake. Lord. Yes. So I'm just picturing a society of people reimagining 
the VMA performance. Um, and then the, <laughs> the cover is quite interesting. The doctor's hiding among the neon tube insignia, which is, <laughs> I don't think we've ever had anything like that on a cover before. No, and we'll only have it one more time, in fact. Okay, so that that's something new and interesting that I realized. I enjoy this drawing of the snake. It reminds me of, of one of the creatures in Cubert, which is a <laughs> coiled snake that bounces around the screen after you. <laughs> yes. So I enjoy this cover. It's kind of silly. And then once I started reading the book, I was expecting it to kind of live up to my expectations from Kinda because I actually really liked that. I liked some of the philosophical elements of it. And this one, I think, is reaching for that, but never quite gets it. And it's kind of clumsy about it. But eh, it was was okay. It was okay once I started getting through it. Yeah, it's been said of this story that it's much more traditionally Doctor Who story than Kinda is. And you can definitely definitely see that. And I (laughs) think that is specifically Christopher Bailey being more familiar with the show by this point and more familiar with television writing by this point as well. That might be a lot of it. Mm -hmm. He's been assimilated by this point. Yes. Allison, what was your first impression? I thought it was a great pulp cover from the book title down. The Doctor at a Garden Party was kind of a a contrast to that tone. Both mixing an illustration with a photo and then the fact that maybe he's viewing the Mara at some kind of, like a terrarium or something. I don't know. I also kind of like that you can't tell if the snake is consuming a planet or sort of delivering a tremendous dose of venom, and that kind of works either way. So this is like, what, it's 83, 84, the adaptation came out. This is sort of the end of the golden age of pulp cover illustrations. Mm. So this is a nice example of that. Mm, Okay. And then I read the back cover, and I thought they really did quite give away the store. Yeah, there's no caginess as far as the plot for this one, because the plot is surprisingly very straightforward, because that's one of the other things. I mentioned earlier, though, that we're only going to get Davison popping out of the logo once more. I think we'll be okay. And I can't remember what book that's for, but that was essentially seen as a compromise, because they wanted to have Davison's face on the cover while he was still on television. But they also didn't want to do those god-awful photo covers anymore. So they decided to put him up in the logo and then do a traditional cover, which was not a bad compromise, really. I wonder if they discussed an option of putting his head on the body of the snake. (laughs) Like Beetlejuice, yes. Oh, God. (laughs) Oh, what a thought. Oh, Lord. This is also the shortest Terrence Dix prologue we've ever had. Yeah. It's not very long, is it? We get that intro to Dojin, then we're into the story. But I thought that was a nice device throughout. So once Dojin actually joins the rest of the characters, it feels like an event. Otherwise, it would just be, and here's this guy. He's got a snake on a stick. But since <laughs> that, that was the first character that we saw, and we saw him sort of contemplatively sitting in wait throughout the story, it did give us a sense of sort of climax when he actually joined the rest of the cast. Yeah, there's actually at least somewhat of a surprise when you find out, oh, he's the former director. He's the guy that came along before this overbearing academic who now has the job. Well, and I thought it was going to turn out to be the opposite, that he left because he had come to 
uh, believe in the greatness of the Mara and wanted to revive it. Oh, I thought wow. it was going to be his doing that the Mara was returning. Now, that would have been interesting. So it actually surprised me that he was trying to stop it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a little bit of ambiguity, even with the introduction. You don't quite know, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Because we just kind of get a description of him. Mm-hmm. It's like, ooh, And I was okay. trying to figure out if, if the writer was trying to do, like, Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness, or this the, the snake on the stick is the avatar of Mara. So I actually thought it was one of the more interesting parts of the story, partly for the brevity of his passages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can tell that Christopher Bailey is trying to do a little more in the way of world building, not necessarily for Manusa, even though he does that quite well, but to give the Mara some bit of lore. Because any attempt to connect this story to Kenda is doomed to failure because the Kenda have nothing to do with the story. Okay, so I was going to ask if I just missed the obvious here, are the people that we read about in this story supposed to be the descendants of the Kenda? Or the colonists? Or the in the expedition? Or I don't think they are. I don't think it has anything to do with Kenda. I may be wrong. So were they wiped out? I expected something towards the end of an explanation of what had happened because we have things in their civilization that were 500 years ago, 700, 800, and then we did not have that explanation. Right. Not even a passing mention, I thought, of the expedition or the Kenda, unless I missed something. There wasn't. Mm-mm, the The no. only thing we got, I think, was the doctor saying, yeah, you were asleep this whole time, but this is what happened back on the planet of the Kenda. Well, and the fact that it's the homeworld of two different empires is something the doctor points out is very interesting. And then he apparently wasn't that interested. <laughs> well, he didn't go back to it. Sorry, that's Nyssa who finds that interesting. Yeah, he does point out, though, that one of those empires is very obviously the Empire of the Mara. So this particular planet was under the rule, I guess, of the Mara for however long. And that's an interesting concept of what would happen if a Doctor Who villain were to win. Occasionally, you would get something like this. You'd get some sort of static society that was apparently barbaric and ruthless and awful, and then people banded together and got rid of it, and somehow put it back into the dark recesses of the inside. Though, that's the weird thing. We get an origin of the Mara in this one. Although I feel like there have been several villains who used to have an empire, and it's way back in the past. Well, Daleks, yeah, Daleks definitely have an empire, and well, Santarans, I guess. Under the army base, and sorry, I can never remember what they are. The people under the army base. The lizard people under the army base. Oh, you mean the ice warriors? Yes. Uh, not so much an empire, but yeah, they had an empress, or they will have an empress, as we find out in the later story, but yeah, the timeline is very strange here, but that's fine, because it really doesn't seem to matter. All we need to know is that the Mara is something that is a possibility whenever a civilization is in decline, because it causes civilizations to decline and causes them to fall at a particular given moment. Like sewage, smartphones, and Donald Trump, some things are just inevitable. And with Manusa, it's that they've become so incredibly complacent that they don't even believe that the Mara is capable 
of returning. And for that matter, they don't see the Mara as anything more dangerous than, say, a character in a Punch and Judy puppet show, which is just hilarious. <laughs> I love that idea. Alternative universe, Punch and Judy. Yeah. Um, they do more with that in the televised version, obviously. You can't really do a Punch and Judy show on the page and have it come across with the same sort of impact, but it really is quite creepy when you watch it in the televised version and then you get the double meaning of it which is oh they've essentially made this horrifying thing into entertainment for kids which of course doctor who is (laughs) well i think they do point out the original punch and judy is something about you know oh this is a guy who brutalizes his wife and yes (laughs) am i thinking of the right puppet show yes Mm -hmm. It's sort of a recurring domestic violence motif. Yes. It was already dark. It's an unusually enlightened insight from Terrence Dix. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. (laughs) Even though we don't get much of a description for it, it's still anyone who knows what Punch and Judy is gets the reference and you understand like, yeah, this is totally like simplifying it and making it digestible for kids in a way that allows them to not be afraid of it, which is Mm -hmm. kind of the point is that there's this bad thing that you really should not fuck with not mess with not ignore (laughs) but whatever we're gonna make it for kids we're gonna have people dress up like halloween and and come around and ask you for money and if you don't give them money they're gonna dump water on you like it's all become a huge joke (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah it's kind of in its own way and i noticed that the doctor points out that there's a parallel to halloween and Mm trick-or-treating even though trick-or-treating is not really a thing that they do in the uk or did in the uk well in purim where there i haven't i might be getting the tradition wrong here but in the reading of the story don't children like jeer and make noises whenever Haman's name is mentioned i guess maybe i'm getting the reference wrong Purim, where the holiday commemorating Esther Mm -hmm. interceding to stop the massacre that Haman's trying to perpetrate. Okay. And I think when the story is read aloud, that the children jeer every time Haman's name is mentioned. Really? Okay. I I have not participated in this cultural tradition, but I thought that was the reference here. No. Or it was supposed to be that kind of a tradition. Though British audiences would have been a little more familiar with the idea of hissing and booing any time a villain comes up because of pantomime shows. It's not the Doctor that makes the specific reference to Jerk or Treat. It's Dix who says that the Doctor is thinking of it that way. Which is interesting because if you think about it, Halloween is derived from this kind of religious ceremony where you're remembering the dead. It's when the dead are closest to us. Mm -hmm. And it's turned into something that is commercialized and has toys, like the toy snakes in the story. And no one really believes that the spirits of the dead are close by us on those days. And yet, I'm kind of going up my own spout with this one. So someone else take it away. I was just thinking you're going in a similar direction of the 80s slogan, Jesus is the reason for the season as a protest to commercialization of Christmas. But I have never heard someone complain before that Halloween has become crass and <laughs> irreligious. Well, no one does. But certainly if you're practicing Wiccan, it's mm-hmm. still a holy day. So Samhain or Samhain or however you pronounce it is still considered to be 
a religious holiday. But yeah, Halloween is basically a commercialization of that. But you're right, the closer thing would be the whole Christmas thing, except for the fact that Santa Claus isn't generally thought of as a demon. Not generally. Sometimes he is, though. Sectarian basis, different belief. Yeah, exactly. What else did you find interesting about this or not as interesting as Kinda? I like that I get to see more of Tegan being creepy and evil. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember being a highlight of Kinda is her reveries being very engrossing. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And it was an important part of Kinda, but it didn't take up as much of the story. But it's a huge part of this one. And oh, I, yeah. I really enjoy it. And I can't wait to actually watch the episode to see Janet Fielding be this character because I know she's going to be incredible. <laughs> oh, yeah. Janet Fielding is just amazing in this particular story, especially since a lot of the Mara acting that she has to do in the end of the story, when her face is superimposed on the snake, she has to stay completely still for that shot. And yet she still has to act evil and then act like Tegan has come out of it briefly, but she's trying to trick the doctor, rather the Mara is trying to trick the doctor. And it really is astonishing how good she is there. Tegan gets to be basically the villain in this one. Yeah. As we all suspected she would be. <laughs> well, in Kenda, it was more about her sort of psychological experience, and it was fun that she got to do some mustache swirling in this one. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Much less subtle. Yeah, far, far, far much less subtle. Was Terrence Dix making fun of the set dressing when he referred to the palace room being, quote, opulently furnished by a bewildering variety of styles probably and there's a story behind that it turns out that uh i'm trying to remember it now. i thought he was saying it was tacky no i i didn't put it in the notes because i didn't think it was worth mentioning but it turns out it is worth mentioning the designs for this particular story were done by an outside contractor but they didn't really take the job until the last possible moment, and then they did a rush job. So it's not great looking. (laughs) I think the sequences in the palace are actually probably the best looking of all of it, but the rest of it, yeah, it's a bit slapdash. So that could be Terrence Sticks knowing something of the story behind that and making fun of it. What else? The introduction of Tana as someone who is a professional attendee of events and how tiresome that is. How how it's a skill set to look constantly curious and delighted at ribbon cuttings and touring museums and whatnot. And I thought that was actually, a once again, for Terrence Dick, an unusually subtle characterization of someone like that. Mm -hmm. I was shocked that Lon survived the story because I thought that we were being set up from the beginning to have no sympathy at his death. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah, what a little shit. The fact that he actually made it through and didn't undergo any kind of transformation of character or coming of age, but just continued to be himself and alive was kind of a surprise. Mm -hmm. Did not learn a thing. Nope. Didn't learn a damn thing. (laughs) I I was just agreeing that, yeah, Lon is a bastard and horrible and totally expected something horrible to come of him because even before the Mara had influence upon him he was a little shit he was toying (laughs) 
with Ambrose with the statue and acting like he's going to throw it and then not throwing it and then throwing it when he's not paying attention. <laughs> he's he's like a horrible little snobby teen that's out of control and yeah. needs to be put in his place. I thought there would be more of a coming of age story where he rose to the occasion, mm. but there was in fact not. And uh, towards the end, one of the last pages, we're told Manusa was free at last of the menace of Mara. I'm like, yes, but not of the menace of a hereditary ruler, apparently, as Lon just sits around <laughs> bored, waiting for his dad to die, but not really being interested in learning how to run this empire. Right. Well, we assume that after the events of the story, there's got to be some change that happens to him. I don't know. I did not assume that. I actually kind of liked the cynicism of, you know, he's just a rich kid who doesn't have to do anything, and uh, that's who he's going to continue to be. Yeah, that's a point. He doesn't have to rise to the occasion, so he doesn't. Yeah, and even Tana knows that he's a spoiled brat. There's one scene that I know for sure that either Dix has added, or he's restored to the story. It might have been in Christopher Bailey's shooting script or whatever. But there's that conversation that Tana is having with Ambrel about having children. Yes. (laughs) And regretting it. And it's like, oh my, that's a lovely character moment. And it's not in the televised story. But it is completely in character for her. I think Tana is possibly, along with Lon, one of the best things about this story. Because that actress is just tremendous at playing the professional, as you said, Allison, the professionally bored ceremony attender. Well, she might be bored, but she's very good at emoting properly and graciously. And I liked the presentation of that being a lot of hard work and a skill set. And Lon hasn't bothered to learn any of it at all because he was born in this position. And I like the idea that she would be kind of annoyed that Mm -hmm. he didn't have to learn how to do anything. I also like how when she takes this a prisoner... She's like, oh, one finds oneself in a situation one's never been in before. What does one say in these situations? More like a very gracious hostess. <laughs> yes, a very gracious hostess who's trying to see a guest who's been very ungracious out <laughs> and tell them to get the hell out of the uh, house. Yeah, it's got that feel to it. She's not unkind, but she's doing something that she finds distasteful, but which must be done anyway. You get the sense that Lon doesn't have any of those problems. He's perfectly fine with just saying, oh, you should be punished for this. And you get the sense that the punishment would not be great. I mean, if the doctor can be thrown into prison just for suggesting the Mara's coming back, then obviously the society is a little bit on the authoritarian side. It probably wouldn't take much of a push to push it back onto the side of the Mara. So, yeah. There's some really effective world building in this. In what state do you think it's implied that the Mara exists when it's sort of dormant as it is here? Because we're told that it's basically sort of built by the thoughts and fears yes. of its believers. But it exists in some state. It does. Enough of a state that it can transmit coordinates to the brains of humans. Well, in Tegan's case, it's able to transmit those coordinates because it's still present inside her. But she doesn't just know that stuff off the top of her head. No, she doesn't. That's what I'm saying. It's still there. It seems to be an active intelligence that still had some state of consciousness. 
Yes and no. We're told that the Mara exists in the dark places of the inside. So it is a potential being in just about anybody who lives in a civilization of a particular height, I guess. Not, you know, you have to be 6'1". To be civilized. <laughs> to get on this ride, yeah. But it certainly has that feel of there's the potential for the Mara to come out of any of us because we have that darkness inside us. In Tegan's case, however, she's already been host to the Mara once. So it probably sees her as, you know, now that she's back in the TARDIS, it has another shot at being able to get itself back home, as the doctor puts it. I forget, the Kenda are mentioned once, I thought it was one of the better scenes with the Mara and Tegan, is it explains to her that there's not a plot hole. <laughs> as the Mara explains on the Kenda world, I was trapped in a circle of mirrors, said the hateful voice. There is no circle here. Right. And I was wondering if that was on screen. They actually explained why the mirror is not effective in the way that one might expect that they are not circle. You know? But the Mara I, does mention on the Kenda world, which I thought was interesting. I don't remember. And in fact, I probably should look that up. Tell you what, why don't you discuss amongst yourselves while I look it up? <laughs> and I can tell you for sure. Well, so Tegan sees the Mara in the mirror, and then she's confused because she thought the Mara was repelled by mirrors, and the Mara explains that was a mirror circle. Right. Mm -hmm. And even though they're in a hall of mirrors, I guess they don't have them hung quite that way. The typical carnival mirrors that are just distorting. Mm -hmm. That's all they are. Well, and I think part of it, too, is that with Kinda, you know, since they were a primitive society, I got a lot of out of that story was that they didn't have mirrors. They didn't have a way to reflect upon themselves. Whereas this society is at the height where they have them. It's part of what they are. So instead of the Mara having to prey upon people that are being reflective, they already do that. So it's not something that it can use against them. Whereas right. the Kinda don't use mirrors. So the mirror can be something that it can use to, to affect them. Mm -hmm. I think that might be it. Because in Kinda, the idea was that evil can't look on itself. But mm -hmm. that may be only true in a society where there's no real way for you to look upon yourself. There's no way for you to be reflected. That being said, the carnival mirrors are by necessity a distorted reflection they are not mm -hmm. our true selves and we see ourselves in a very disturbing way as opposed to what we really are which is kind of interesting given that we're talking about the minutians basically distorting the legacy of the mara and bastardizing it and making it into you know like a children's holiday mm -hmm. <laughs> well dugdale using this sort of psychological language as he's trying to lure people into the hall of mirrors you know see yourself as you really are look deep inside uh, but he's really not offering a lot of uh you know introspection and insight i loved his reaction to tegan being possessed and doing the two voices and trying to figure out how he could work that into an act yeah <laughs> right he's such a great character isn't he <laughs> yes yeah he really is oh and to answer Allison's question, that explanation is on screen, because I'm looking at it right now. I'm looking at that very scene yeah. where Dugdale walks in and he hears the two voices. 
Well, actually, I appreciate them saying, you know, basically answering the question the audience might have, which is, why don't you just use the mirrors? <laughs> exactly. Well, It'd be so much easier. Differently. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to get another fake snake, though. I think the fake snake in Snake Dance is slightly more convincing than the one we get in Kinda. Other things that you find interesting about this or things that you didn't like about the book? Just a, a parallel that I, I thought about was when Namara is talking about feeding off people's fear and, and loathing, it reminded me of the concept in Twin Peaks of Garmin Bosia, which is Ooh. what the beings from the Dark Lodge use and feed off of, which is the same thing. They feed off people's fear and then bad energy. So I thought that was interesting that it, it's also brought up here as it's literally said it's it's meat and drink. Mm-hmm. for the Mara. <laughs> that is a direct requoting from Kinda mm-hmm. that we don't get in the story, in the televised version, in fact. But yeah, that's Dick's remembering, yep, our suffering is the Mara's meat and drink. And I'm glad you brought up that parallel because you would think that maybe David Lynch... <laughs> I had watched Doctor Who at some point and saw this, but no. No, I, I think it's just you've got two really good writers coming up with a similar concept, and it works incredibly well because those beings from the, the Black Lodge really do strike me as another version of the Mara. They would just need affinity with snakes to make it complete. Yeah, total beings of mischief and chaos that feed off of that in the real world and and become stronger because of it. Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. And there's also, come to think of it, this idea of religion playing a role in it, because I will admit that any time snakes come up in this and we're told about, oh, they handle snakes, I think about southern snake handler churches. Oh, yes. Which I never got, really. Luckily, I never went to one as a kid, though. There were members of the family who were snake handler adjacent. So I could very easily have been taken to a church where there were snakes being passed around. Luckily, that didn't happen. But it's that same sort of thing. That idea that if you cavort with the snake yourself, then you somehow have power over it. Though I'm not quite sure that's quite what's happening here. Yeah, it's kind of strange. Yeah, so I think it's the idea that you manifest or you demonstrate that you have enough faith that the snake won't harm you. Mm-hmm. Even if the snake does bite you, that the venom is not something that can take you out it won't kill you and i I think it's interesting too that that a lot of the snake handling churches they're not using non-venomous snakes yeah they almost always are using venomous snakes because you're getting bitten by a black snake that's not gonna you know whatever but it bit (laughs) me but you're messing around with water moccasins and things like that yeah there's that heightened level of faith that's there that the god will take care of me and yet, ironically, there's a high incidence of people dying in snake handler churches, mm-hmm. specifically because they're using things like water moccasins and highly, highly venomous snakes. Yeah. yeah, the doctor allowing himself to be bitten by the snake so he can communicate and transmogrify that venom. It's an interesting sequence, especially since you can't imagine any other doctor doing quite that and quite that way. 
if anything, it would be any of the other doctors would be the ones who would come up with that as the solution. But he's the one who has to learn it because the fifth doctor is never quite the elderly sage that would be envisioned. That's why both of these two stories each has its own elderly sage character. We got Pana in Kinda and then we get Dojin in this one. This is something that the Matt Smith doctor talks about basically how he keeps getting younger and younger and I think he says something like everyone pretends to be old when they're young. Yes. And I had never noticed before that the doctors get younger and younger and younger. Yeah. And it's only at this point in the show's history that that starts happening. Of course, then they start getting into their mid-40s again before they start getting younger again. But yeah, it's only the Peter Davison doctor and the Matt Smith doctor that really have that theme going, even though I just remembered the 10th doctor, David Tennant, also has lines about being so old, even though he doesn't appear to be. I mean, Mm -hmm. after Hartnell, they all look young. Yeah, yeah. obviously. I I, I do feel, though, that like these five, they look younger with each iteration. I guess maybe between second and third, there's somewhere it could go the other way. But I think of the two of them, Pertwee was the elder. I was going to say that 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 kind of messes up my theory there. But yeah, but Tom Baker to me looks younger. Yeah. And then Davison looks younger than him. I don't know about the actual ages, but the styling. Yeah, that Tom Baker was a much more active doctor. Actually, I think at the time he would have been the youngest when he took on the role. But yeah, Davison is the first one who's not a sage, an elderly, wise old man in the same way as the other doctors. You've talked before about how the fifth doctor, people say he's the most human. Yes. And so I think that really supports that because whereas before, you know, the doctor would come up with crazy plans and have a lot of confidence in what he's thinking about doing and he really has a lot of time to like figure things out Uh, from what i've seen the fifth doctor even though he is good about figuring things out and coming up with solutions he doesn't always have quite the amount of confidence that previous doctors would have and so even though he trusts in himself it's not always quite evident to other characters that they should trust in him yeah so there's always like a little bit of is this gonna work is this really going to be okay? <laughs> yes, exactly. I think I've said before that the fifth doctor could be characterized by blind panic. Mm. Yes. <laughs> that you definitely see it in this story. As a matter of fact, people have pointed out that this story is one of those stories where you see the doctor the way everybody else always does as a madman who's shouting about, oh, the end of the world is near, ah, and nobody believes him. Usually we're with the doctor for most of the time and we can understand that, no, he's telling the truth about all this, but this story does this interesting way of showing us the doctor through other characters' eyes so that we can see this youngish guy in a weird set of clothes going on about the Mara coming back and, oh my God, and trying to make a nuisance of himself just before they're having this holiday. So of course he's going to seem crazy. Yeah. Whereas the other doctors could bluster into a room and scream at everyone and make them listen to him. The fifth doctor tries that and it does not work. I don't think it's worked in a mm. single story. <laughs> no. And he invariably makes things worse yes for example when he goes to see ambril and he's trying to convince ambril that he knows what he's talking about 
But then Ambro brings up the six faces of... Is it the six faces or the five faces? Six faces, yeah. That's it. And <laughs> the doctor says, put it on. See? The sixth face is you. And this pisses Ambro off and he throws him out. It's like, doctor, why? You're trying to convince this guy and you've just shown him up. Why would you do that? Because now he's really not going to be on your side. Sure, you managed to get Chella on your side, but... <laughs> he's not very good at it he's not very good at just blustering in and being this presence and figuring things out and being confident in his solutions even when he goes to see Dojin, this whole thing of the venom he's not even sure that's going to work he's not sure what the solution is whereas any of the other doctors probably would have figured it out from basic principles yeah and yet it still works and amazingly and this is something i meant to point out earlier this is one of the few doctor who stories in which no one dies right (laughs) yeah you've got this world threatening evil not a single person dies in the story not even one even though the entire civilization comes damn close to being destroyed not a single person dies. Whereas Kinda, you had a couple characters that you assume died off screen, but mm-hmm. they didn't die within the confines of the story. To the point that you think maybe Christopher Bailey just doesn't like killing people off. Yeah. yeah but it doesn't happen at all in the story, which is kind of brilliant in its own way. I do feel, and, and I've said this about so many stories in the past, that the resolution is super, super quick. Yeah. Like we've had in the past, it's like the last three pages where everything wraps up and then they get in the TARDIS and they're gone. And with all the buildup with the story, it feels like there should have been something more to that, but we don't get it. And it just feels rushed. It feels like if I could have had like another three pages after that of something, of the doctor talking to Jojen again or talking to Tana, talking to Ambrose, anything like that. But he basically is just like, oh, they can handle it from here. Goodbye. Yeah. On screen, the very last scene is him sitting beside Tegan on the stairs and saying, it's over. The Mara is finally destroyed. And that's it. Roll credits. Mm -hmm. At least here, Dix is adding those bits at the end so that we get to see everyone returning to normal, Mm -hmm. including Lon, for instance. I mean, is it really deader than it was before? Is what better than it was before? Is the, the Mara deader than it was before? Oh, God, no. I mean, as far as the classic <laughs> series goes, yes. But the big finish audio that is then the direct sequel to this one, in that one, the Doctor gets taken over by the Mara. And that's creepy as fuck, to have Peter Davison playing that sort of evil. Which he does quite well. It just seemed a very overconfident declaration. Oh, yeah, now it's deadsies for realsies. Yeah, and he said that before. He said that in Kinda, and he was wrong there. The Fifth Doctor is vulnerable and is human and is not very confident. And as both Jim Sangster and J.G. McQuarrie have pointed out, he's super bitchy. (laughs) Yeah. He's definitely different than any of the Doctors who have come before. But unlike them, rather than the Doctor saving the day because he knows better than anybody else because he's the smartest man in the room, he wins the day despite himself. 
in lots of cases. And in fact, in his final season, we're going to see a couple of extremely Pyrrhic victories where the doctor says, okay, it's over, only because there's a pile of bodies around him and he and the TARDIS crew are the only survivors. And it's like, yeah, this is the only doctor that that could really happen with. But I don't want to give too much away about future stories. <laughs> but yeah, Dalton, going back to your original point, it is very quick. But I think that's mainly because the sequence where the Mara is basically taking over everybody, including Nyssa, on screen is really quite effective, and it's stretched out a bit. It's almost impossible to stretch that out on the page, though. That Even that's a bit beyond Dix's abilities here. <sighs> so, was there anything we particularly disliked, or...? I mean, it's like an utterly unnecessary story. Utterly unnecessary in what way? I mean, was anyone really clamoring for a return to the Mara in particular? Hmm. But that doesn't make... I mean, it's sci-fi. It's all unnecessary, so it's a really stupid complaint on my part. (laughs) It's not like I had this huge appetite for a return to this planet and this premise. But then it was very pleasant. Yeah. Well, pleasant. I mean, let's not get carried away. (laughs) Yeah. I enjoyed this more than Arc of Infinity bringing back Omega out of nowhere. You know, this brings back the Mara out of nowhere, but this one is at least more enjoyable. Like we're saying, it really feels like it builds a world, even though it's not the same as Kenda, but we still get an idea of what this place is, who these people are, and that actually works. And so even though it does just like show up out of nowhere, I'm like, okay, I enjoy this. It's okay. But I thought that the comparison to Kenda was not in this story's favor. No. Because Kenda was so much more engaging as world building, I thought. Yeah, you definitely are not the first people to say that. Everybody says that about Snake Dance, that people actually do enjoy the story because the performances are great. And despite the bad set design, it looks quite good. But the things that were engaging about Kenda are mostly absent here, I thought. Agreed. Keegan being possessed is still very entertaining, but it's more humor, whereas before it was actually wonderfully unsettling. Mm-hmm. So even that element is more more conventional. I mean, it's, it's entertaining, but it's not that sort of above and beyond creep out that we had before. No. And Dix also is not interested in expanding it quite the same amount that he did last time, which wasn't all that much because the original script was pretty good. There's less for him to do in this one, too. Though you can tell he's having some fun with it because when he writes a line like, the doctor was in a cell, (laughs) that seems like all he has to say. It's like, oh, we're here again. And Nissa is thinking, assuming that the doctor was A, in trouble, and B, probably locked up. Yeah, she knows him quite well. (laughs) And so does Dix. Well, is there anything else you want to say about this one? Fear is the only poison. Felt to me like fear is the mind killer from Dune. Doesn't it? Yes. It's like, okay, if you're going to steal, at least steal from some of the best. So steal from Dune in this one. Yeah, this is the Gamjabar. Here you go. (laughs) <laughs> the pageant was interesting overall, I thought. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, because especially that call and response that mm-hmm. Lon has to do, there's something really poetic in those responses. I mean, it's a religious pageant, and you can see why it would 
be a fun or an, an, an engaging tradition. Mm-hmm. I give you despair and a handful of dust. There's something really great about that. Even though it's very cheesily done, it's still the sort of pageant that people would look forward to every 10 years. Mm-hmm. Thinking about the pageants, uh, it reminded me of Fort of Doomsday, and I wonder if Monarch would have liked to get his hands on some of these things. Uh, oh, <laughs> God. If he had, he would not be doing it every 10 years. He'd be doing it every 10 minutes like he did those other <laughs> fucking things on that ship. Jesus Christ. Uh, I think I said so at the time, that that's definitely a sign of his insanity, that he felt that all of those amusements were still amusing after 10,000 years. Yeah. God. (laughs) Sorry to bring him up again. (laughs) That's fine. It's, uh, yeah, they're still amusing. It's more than we can say for uh, Ford to Doomsday. I'm glad you brought that up, Dalton, because this story is actually in the same position for this season as For the Doomsday was for Davison's first season. It's a second story. Yeah. And this one is so much better. Mm-hmm. Whereas the first story this season was not. <laughs> no. No, not at all. So, shall we go to Goodreads? Let's saunter on over. Let's do it. All right. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with their own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured, when you get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of 5 stars is 3.41. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length, so everyone would keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Dave Davies gives it 3 stars and says, Not, in my opinion, Terrence Dick's best writing, but the book scores over the TV version in a few areas. The sets, for example, weren't great because they were rushed, as permission to have them built by an outside company was withheld until it was almost too late. Okay, I got that story wrong. I apologize. The biggest problem on screen, though, is the giant snake that appears near the end of the story. It is truly awful. Even the improved CGI Mara used for the Mara Tales box set isn't as good as the one on the cover of this book. I still think it's better than what we got in Kenda, but there you go. Craig gives it three stars as well and says Dix could have done a better job of summarizing the situation. As it is, I think reading the other one first is necessary. Yeah, you kind of have to have Kenda under your belt before the story makes sense. Tegan is once again taken over by the evil Mara, and the Doctor and Nyssa have to save her as well as the Minusins. Snakes and religion and philosophy are involved, though the story doesn't delve too deeply. Not a bad story, but it feels rushed and could have been much better. And finally, Rocky Suniko gives it four stars and says this was a tricky story to dive into, given it relies a lot on familiarity with the serial Kinda, where the Mara was first introduced. It still stands on its own, but it would certainly help to know more about Tegan's first struggle with the psychic entity. We get bogged down a lot with the locals, so to speak, and it's not necessarily all that exciting. The Mars plan is extremely subtle and relies on knowledge of the truth of the race, truth lost to rituals, traditions, and natural erosion of memory time. Natural erosion of memory time? 
I don't know what he means by that. It's not exactly the most exciting adventure, but the ending is very Doctor Who in tone and structure, and it makes sense enough. So I guess that's a very reserved four stars. Dalton, out of five <laughs> stars, what would you give this one? I feel confident giving this one a three. The story is interesting enough. The writing is interesting enough. It's not horrible. I don't hate it. It doesn't shine the way it could, the way that Kenda did. I didn't get a lot of the philosophical elements that I enjoyed out of Kenda with this one. They're kind of lightly sprinkled in, but it's not like a huge part of what makes this story interesting. Okay. So, yeah. Three stars. And Allison? I'm trying to remember what I gave Arc of Infinity because I want to give this one more because otherwise I'm a monster. <laughs> I'd go two stars. Okay. Which, I don't know. It, it sounds harsh. There's nothing terrible about it. I just will remember nothing about it later on. And in terms of its link to Kenda... I think it suffers in every comparison. Also, the story punishes you for not having seen or read Kenda, but it doesn't reward you for having seen or read it. Hmm. Hmm. I feel like that's sort of a worst of all possible worlds. It'll be challenging to understand if you're not familiar with that story, but the connections aren't especially satisfying either. Okay. So there's nothing negative I have to say. I did appreciate how relatively straightforward it was and unpretentious. So it was a nice, simple narrative and has, like I said, a great pulp cover. But the windshield wiper of the mind is going to erase it by noon tomorrow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and as for me, I'd have to agree with Dalton. But for the same reasons that Allison just talked about, I'd give this a three because it's an extremely straightforward Doctor Who story compared to Kenda. And as a result, Terrence Dickles gives us a very straightforward novelization of it. There are no bells, there are no whistles, there are a few extra bits such as Tana's discussion about how awful it is to have children, which I'm sure I'll understand one day. <laughs> Apart from that, there's not much different or new. It has a great cover. It's still a good adaptation of a good script, but it's not a great adaptation of a great script in the way that Kinda was a good adaptation of a great script. And it's still kind of shown through the page. This one doesn't have quite as much shine on it, so yeah, three stars. Well, thank you both. Mm -hmm. And thank you fellow time travelers for giving us your valuable time. Next time we discuss the novelization of Modern Undead. It's another Peter Grimm lead story, so beware. Beware. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetDC. Or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at EmperorDalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
Direction point. Direction point. A Doctor Who Podcast Network.